Thank you everyone for being here. We are here to see one another. Uh, we are thankful to see one another, but primarily we are here to see Christ. We want to see Christ in the Word of God. And so thank you for joining us. Uh, please open your Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 3. Every single human society on earth requires leadership. When one leader is removed, whether that is by resignation or revolt or revolution or death, there is always an inevitable power vacuum. Someone must be in power. Somebody must have authority. Somebody must be in charge. But this is not only true in nations, this is true in families. This is true in businesses. Somebody is in charge. Today we want to examine the theological question of leadership. How is it, from a divine perspective, that people are raised up into a position of power? Why do evil people sometimes rise to the most prominent of positions? Isaiah chapter 3 gives us a brilliant glimpse into the mind of God as to why he raises up certain kinds of leaders. It helps us to understand the very nature of the downfall of a society. Now before we delve into the text itself, allow me a quick disclaimer. The book of Isaiah is an equal opportunity book of judgment. If Isaiah had a map of the known world of his time on his bedroom wall, it's like he's throwing darts at each and every nation until every one of them has been pegged. He is speaking to nations like Egypt and Edom and Tyre and Assyria and Syria and Moab and Ethiopia, just to name a few. He goes after all of them. However, the main target of Isaiah's book was the nation of Judah. Chapter 1 served as a big introduction to the book, but chapters 2 through 4 give us the primary target and the goal of his preaching. He is speaking in chapters 2 through 4 in a single declaration against Judah. Last week, Steve carried us through chapter 2 to give us the beginning of that declaration, but the same theme continues to flow throughout our text this morning. This book of Isaiah was written for you, but it was not written to you. This book was written to the nation of Judah. Therefore, we need to be very careful about doing a drag and drop of these promises or curses to our current nation or political situation. Judah is not America and vice versa. Now, the biggest trouble people have when they are seeking to interpret this book of Isaiah, the biggest problem people have when they are understanding it is that they will assume that every promise or every curse speaking about a nation is speaking about their own nation. Or that every promise or every curse speaking to an individual is about them individually. This book was written for you. It was not written to you. The main thing that separates Judah away from every other nation mentioned in this book is this. God made a covenant with them. He had called them out to be separate. God had made promises to them that He would bring a Messiah to them and through them and for them. Now we are a different people. We look at the Bible and we see that we are a new covenant community. 
we see that we are believers, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. It calls us in 1 Peter a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are called a nation. We don't have any boundaries or borders. We do not have anything like a nation on this planet. We don't look the same. We are from every tongue and tribe and people. We are separate from them in that our primary citizenship is not here in America. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. So I want you to understand that as I preach this message today, I am not making any direct statements about any particular politician that might come to your mind. That's important to remember because you might think I'm speaking about somebody at the national level or the state level or the local level. Please be assured that I am, in a general way, I am not speaking of anyone in particular. It is not my goal to win you over to my political perspectives. It is not my desire to make you vote the way that I do. That is not my purpose in life. That is not my purpose in my sermon this morning. Rather, my goal today is to help you understand the mind of God in regards to the question of why evil and wicked leaders rise and fall. How is it that God redeems us from this system? So let me now pray to that end. Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have given us this book of Isaiah so that we might know your mind and your heart. God, I thank you that you have given this word to those people so you would show them what was coming in their day. Lord, I pray that you would help us to glean what you desire for us to learn from the character of God in this passage, from the pattern of your action. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know you and to understand you. But more so, God, I pray that we would see that where every other human institution has failed, you succeed in your King, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom, the church. We pray, Lord, that you would cause this sermon to be effective in helping us to grow and helping us, as we just sang, to see Christ. Show us Christ. We desire to know him more today. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 2 through 4 is a masterful poem. It's a poem that is filled with complex thought patterns and formulations that create brilliant word tapestries. Now, even as you look at the formatting, of your Bible. What I mean by that is look at the text in your Bible. You will notice that some of it is very blocky and it goes all the way across the lines and just follows like a normal paragraph. And then you will come to sections like this where it is offset. It looks more like the Psalms than like the, the histories in the Bible. And it looks that way because it is a giant poem. It is a poetic representation of what God the Holy Spirit desired to express to the people of Judah. We will not have time today to engage with every metaphor or argument in this poem. But I am going to break down the main point of the text in the following way. Point number one, all earthly leaders are flawed. Point number two, some leaders are worse than others. And point number three, there is one leader without flaws. Let's begin with point number one. All earthly leaders are flawed. If you're looking at Isaiah 3, you'll notice that the very first word in the text is the word for, or depending on your translation, it might be the word because. 
That is a terrible way to come into a conversation. If you walk into a room and somebody says to you, for this or that, or because this or that, you need to say, whoa, 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 back up a minute. What are we talking about here? So please do me a favor and scroll your finger up one verse to the last verse of chapter 2, verse 22. It says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This thought is going to be carried throughout all of chapter 3. As my friend and my mentor Ed Moore often has said, the best of men are men at best. The first king of the earth, Adam, what did he do? He handed his dominion over to the first creature that tempted him, and for it he plunged all of humanity into sin. Noah was mastered by his love of alcohol, and for it he received abuse from his own son. Abraham was mastered by his desire for security and by lying about his wife and calling her his sister, he damaged his relationship with Sarah and he caused a pattern of deceit to exist that lasted for literally generations. Moses was mastered by his temper on multiple occasions and for that he was not permitted to enter into the promised land. The best king that Israel ever had was David, And David was mastered by his own lust. And for it, he lost the life of his own son. And for it, he lost the respect of the people that he governed. This list could easily go on for pages and pages, but I highlight these men because these are the best of men. These are the best examples that we've got in the Bible. These are the highlights. These are the guys that we look at and say they are our spiritual heroes. And all of them were massive failures in a variety of ways. The Bible does not sugarcoat the details of these men's lives. The Holy Spirit had no interest or intention of inspiring a book of mythological heroes and archetypes of moral perfection. God has been very honest with us that these were complex individuals with a lot of bumps in the road on the way to their sanctification. They got a lot of things wrong. In John chapter 2, verse 24, it says that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knew the hearts of people around him. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what was their motivation and their passion and their goal. Even those who were part of the twelve deserted him. Think about these guys. Judas betrayed him. Jesus knew the whole time that was coming. Peter, what does he do? He denies him three times. Thomas doubts his resurrection. They argue over who is the greatest and who can sit by the right and left hand. And these are the best of them. They all departed when he was arrested. These are the guys that were nearest to Jesus. He did not entrust himself to a man because they were all untrustworthy. Jesus knew that. And he knew that he was their savior. They were not his. God is using Isaiah to warn Judah to stop regarding people. Stop looking out there at these men and women as your messiahs. They cannot possibly be your savior. He must tell them this because there is a natural bent in the human heart to search for a savior. You do the same thing. We want someone to fight our battles for us. We want somebody who will stand there and say, I want you on my team. I want to identify with you. We want somebody who will be glad to say that they are with us. We were naturally drawn to the notion that somebody could save us 
from whatever pain or discouragement or systematic or societal uh, oppression we encounter. We are looking for a savior. But the leaders that we look to can only do so much. The ones that we look to are flawed. Even the best of leaders are going to let you down. I said this before. I think if you are looking to a political leader and you put all of your hope and all of your trust and all of your interest in them, you need to understand that they would turn on you in a moment if they thought it would advance their political career. Unless it's your own mother, then they are not going to stand there for you and with you if it means that they could advance their own political agenda. So please be careful of viewing these men and women as messiahs. Isaiah says, stop regarding men. Stop looking in the wrong places for hope. Stop looking to them for healing. Which brings us now to point number two. Some leaders are worse than others. This is an obvious fact. You don't have to look too far back in history just to say, we've got some great and some not so great, right? You can compare just during World War II, compare and contrast, and you will note some leaders are certainly worse than others. But why is this true? Why is it a reality that if all people have a sin nature and power corrupts all people, why are not all leaders equally evil? Why isn't every single leader a Hitler clone? In order to answer those questions, let's look at the text. First, Isaiah spends five verses in chapter 3 explaining God's ultimate plan of destruction for Judah. He says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah. What is he taking away? Consider these things as you have need of them. He says, He is taking away support and supply. All support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. He's taking away everything that they look to for their comfort and for their societal needs. You cannot survive without food and water. You need security. And he says, I will strip it all away. And he says, I will make boys their princes. That is why I have named this sermon, Men to Boys. He says, infants shall rule over them. The people will oppress one another. Every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. God is essentially saying that people are going to lose their safety net. Everything you rely on is going to be stripped away. I, I read something earlier this week that said when people lose access to one of the following three things, food, uh, water, or security, there will inevitably be rioting. That is what always takes place. There is always civil unrest when one of those things is removed. And God makes it clear that He is going to be the one who removes these things. Verse 1 clearly states that it is God who intentionally takes these things away from them. And notice who it is that's responsible for establishing these bad leaders. God says He will make boys their princes. He will make infants to rule over them. Look, it's no wonder that the kings of Israel did not like him. They, they, they did not like Isaiah because he is calling them babies that are just dressed up in nice clothes. 
He is accusing them of being pathetic and morally infantile. Now, it's important for us to understand that, uh, like it says in one commentary that I read, Judah's timeline at this period of kings was ruled by a bunch of, as he says, quote, meritless nobodies. These guys are the worst of the worst leaders in terms of just having nothing of value to give. So at this point, we've established a couple of things. First of all, God is responsible for establishing kings. We know that from Romans chapter 13. He is the one who puts them into position. They are his servants to pursue his doing. Secondly, we also know that these kings were not good leaders, even in a relative sense. So why is it that God gave these pathetic rulers to Judah? Why did he select these infantile morons to hold the highest position in the land? Look at verses 6 through 9. It says, For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under our rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In, in, my father's house, or in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For they, the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. First of all, consider their state, what they are like, how they operate in terms of sin. The people of Judah are not ashamed of their wicked deeds any longer. They don't even try to hide it. They flaunt it. They boast in it. It's like a banner over their head or a flag that they wave, declaring their pride of exhibition and evil. God judges them for this. But he does not judge them as you might expect. He does not kill them in a flood. He does not strike them with a plague. He does not open the ground and swallow them up as he do has done to people in the past. No, what does he do? He does something that they don't even recognize as a punishment, at least not yet. He does something that is one of the most horrific judgments I can imagine. He lets them do exactly what they want. He gives the people exactly what they ask for. So as we just read, they brought evil on themselves. But how did they do it? Because they decided that they wanted to set up their own evil leaders. And God simply said, go ahead, do it. He did not stop them. He gave them what they wanted. He, he allowed them to experience the sorrow and the frustration that accompanies that kind of foolish decision making. Eventually, the people will see that their de the decisions they made were foolish, but they only decide that's true when the kingdom has already fallen. It is completely ruined and in destruction when they finally look back and say, oh yeah, we were wrong. We'll find that later on in Ezra and Nehemiah, for example. Notice what God is doing. In verse 13, he concludes the discussion about the elevation of evil leaders with his own declaration of judgment by saying, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. When little boys are growing up, they like to wrestle. You don't have to teach them this. They just intrinsically know it. So for example, right now, my two-year-old, Mordecai, 
has decided at every turn that he wants to wrestle with his older brother Athanasius. He is about half Athens' age, and uh, you might think there's going to be a bigger size difference than there actually is because Mordecai's got some girth. Um, but he loves to wrestle even though he's always at a disadvantage, even though he knows this is a mismatch every time. But he will go in and he will dive on him and he will try to roll around and wrestle him. And as he's doing it, I think he knows he's going to lose. He is picking a fight that he cannot win. In like manner, Judah is doing the same thing with God, but on a cosmic level. They are picking a fight they cannot win. They will fail. They cannot box with God. Their arms are too short. So what do we see taking place here? God is offended by the way they flaunt their sin. I just recently watched a documentary about Michael Jordan called The Last Dance. Uh, it was fascinating as I observed what I believe to be the best basketball player in the history of the world. Uh, and, and he would constantly be offended by other people who would make a basket when he was defending them. And he would use that as motivation to crush them. And he would say in the next game, they are not going to score more than five points. I am going to completely embarrass them. I am going to wipe the floor with them. I am going to make sure our team wins by 40 points the next time we play them. Because he would be offended by the way somebody would flaunt themselves when they would make a basket against him. Well, God is jealous for his own reputation. In this sense, he is looking at them and seeing them flaunt their sin, and he says, this must not go on. This cannot be permitted. They have picked a fight with me, and they will not win. So God is offended at what? He is offended at their flaunting of sin, but also he mentions their lawlessness. He is offended by their cruelty. He is offended by their injustice. Verses 13 through 14 state, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you, speaking of the leaders, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your house. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Here he's speaking about the way that they work these people who have nothing to the bone and take everything from them. God hates the self-indulgent tactics of these leaders who are seeking wealth by crushing the poor. So let me recap briefly. How did these people get their position of authority? Bad leaders are put into place by a good God. He puts them there. Isaiah then produces an extended metaphor of the women of Judah to explain the way that God is going to judge the nation. Typically, God is speaking to the men of the nation. Generally, he does not use the metaphor of women, but in Isaiah in particular, we will see several times where he speaks about the nation as if they are a woman. And he speaks about them in regards to the way he is going to bring shame to them. So listen to what it says about their haughtiness and pride and how God is going to humiliate them before the other nations of the world. It says, The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and they walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. 
In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents and the pendants and the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the headbags, the mirrors and the linen garments and the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. Alan Moitier says very well, Everything is designed to attract attention. Posture, demeanor, movement, ornament. It is not their luxurious lifestyle that Isaiah condemns, but the arrogant spirit which prompted it. End quote. Judah is operating in a proud manner. They don't think they need God at all. So they strut through the earth. They walk in pride. And so God is explaining that he is going to systematically deconstruct all of the things that they have used to imagine themselves beautiful. He uses explicit language, which, by the way, is toned down a great deal in the English. It's much more harsh and much more uh, explicit, I would say, in the original language in regards to how he is going to expose them and how he is going to publicly embarrass them. He is going to knock Judah off of her high seat of pride and bring her down low to sit in the dust. And now I want you to glance down at chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, the chapter and number, uh, verse numbers are not inspired by God. Those were added later. This is quite simply a terrible chapter break. Chapter 4, verse 1 concludes his thought regarding these, this metaphor of these women. It says, And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. There's a lot of parallelism going on in this big poem that we're reading. There's a lot of things that I'm not going to bother drawing your attention to, although they are fascinating and brilliant. But one parallelism that I will draw your attention to is this. Back in verse 6, it says that the men will take hold of another man to set him up in authority. Why? Because they want security. Now he is saying that women will come together and grab a man and seek him for the opportunity to take away their shame. But guess what? A man can't do that. That's exactly what we began with today. Stop putting your trust in them. God alone can give you security and God alone can take away your shame. Only God can provide these things so they are looking in the wrong places. God is making it clear to them that the coming judgment is not an act of God losing his temper. It is not an emotional outburst from heaven. God has been immensely patient with Judah here. He is warning them, turn and repent. Which transitions us now to our last point this morning. There is one leader without flaws. If you were reading your Bible with no section headings, and you were just to take chapters 2 through 4, and you were to read it like its original poetic form, you would get to these verses, starting in chapter 4, verse 2, and you would probably feel very tensely the tonal shift that takes place. If you were driving in one direction, 
and somebody in the passenger seat grabs the steering wheel and jerks on the emergency brake and they spin you around, you would have a similar feeling to what you are feeling in this text. Everything so far has been negative, everything so far has been judgment, and now the, the verses go in the exact opposite direction. Notice what it says. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. This is the beginning of a long and glorious thread that will weave throughout many of the prophets until it is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. In particular, I'm referring to the title of Jesus as the branch. Branch, in this context, is a family tree terminology. It means he is the branch, the descendant, the one who comes from someone. Now, Jesus is often referred to in Messianic prophecies as the branch. We see that not only here in the book of Isaiah, but also in Jeremiah and Hosea and Zechariah. We see it in multiple places where he is called the branch, but this is the first occasion in the Bible and in the history of the world that that terminology is used. However, it is used differently here than everywhere else. In this uh, occasion, he is called the branch of the Lord. Every other time, he is called the branch of David. This is important because it tells us something significant about the Messiah. When it says the branch of the Lord, it is clearly saying that the Messiah who is to come is not a man. He is different than man. He is not like you in that sense. He is from God. But later when it says that he is the branch of David, it tells us he is man. He comes from man. He is descended from man. So what we learn all the way back in these prophecies is that he is going to be fully God and fully man, the descendant of both. So what we see happening here is very important, that the Messiah comes out of God, from God, a descendant of God. He is himself God. Jesus, the true leader of Israel, is the long-awaited ruler. He is the one here described as both glorious and beautiful. Now, this is not a reference to physical beauty. We already know from Isaiah 53, later on in this very same book, that he has no form or comeliness, that we should be attracted to him. Nobody was looking at Jesus and saying, I want to follow that guy because of his physical appearance. He probably was indistinguishable if you put him in a lineup with all of the disciples. Which one is Jesus? I don't know. They all look like first century Jewish men to me. They, they all look kind of scraggly and kind of like they've been camping for three years. I'm not really sure which one is Jesus. It's not physical beauty being referenced here. It is the beauty of his holiness that is on display. Jesus is the true leader of Israel who leads them in perfection. As we continue in chapter 4, we read, He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. What does that mean? Everyone who was recorded for life indicates that somebody has, before time, written down exactly who will live and who will not. This is an indication of God's electing love over his people. That there are those who are going to be redeemed. That he has set his affection and love upon from eternity past. Here he continues and says, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of fire by night. For over all 
The glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth and a shade by day from the heat and a refuge for shelter from the storm and the rain. When we look at this, this is Exodus language. It is speaking in regards to what God had done when he delivered his people from captivity in Egypt. There's debate here about exactly what the promise is about and when it will be fulfilled. But I am firmly in the camp that believes this is in reference to the church. That we as the church are protected and guarded and preserved by our King Jesus Christ. That like he said, the gates of hell will not stand against his efforts to build his church. This is a promise from God that he would establish a king, Jesus, and his kingdom, the church. And that we would find refuge in him alone. Allow me to close out here with a few quick points of application. First, do not have regard for earthly rulers. Beware the natural pull to think that a particular party or a particular policy is going to save the world. Jesus alone can save the world, and we need to serve him faithfully. So do not get sucked into the tumultuous slander on Facebook or Twitter as you vie for your candidate. I'm not saying be apolitical, but what I am saying is don't put all of your hopes in them. I am not saying that you should avoid taking politics seriously. Rather, I am asking you to always remember that Jesus is king of your life and that every other ruler over you is subject to him. So don't get sucked into the drama of an election year. I honestly hate election years, and I kind of wish that our president served for 10 years, whether I like them or dislike them, so that we wouldn't have to deal with the drama every four years in this cycle. But don't get sucked into that. Because what often happens as we just so subtly move in the direction of earthly thinking, we set our attention on an election year or a day or a politician or a figure. And what we often do is we take our eyes off of Christ. We expect a politician to bring us hope or bring us security. The church, secondly, should be a city on a hill. We should serve as an example and a model to the world of what people should truly live like. Uh, one of the commentators that I was reading spoke about the church and said, Judah was supposed to be a shining beacon for how the society of the world was supposed to operate. And clearly they failed. Well, in the church, we are supposed to be the people who give an example to the world of what it looks like to be unified and to love one another and to serve one another like Christ. Not with our own desires at first and foremost, but putting others before ourselves. People should be able to look at the church and they should see unity across age gaps and ethnic gaps and socioeconomic gaps. They should look at us and see that we are drawn together by the king that we serve. We are unified in love with one another because we are all in one family. Finally, we, we need to thank God. We need to thank God for sending a good shepherd who cared for his sheep. We need to thank God that we are not left to our own human leaders and devices. We need to thank God that he has sent Jesus to live for us because previously God was against us. Uh, this past week we went to a place that had some live animals that you can feed from your car. These were big animals, not like small things. Uh, they had some exotic animals like zebras and giraffes that would literally poke their head into your window and eat carrots out of your hands. It was bizarre and, and got slobbered on a lot. Several of the animals like llamas or elk would literally 
kind of get their horns stuck as they're trying to remove themselves from our vehicle. Uh, one of them, I think, almost ripped off one of our rearview mirrors. Um, and I was fine with all of them until we got to one particular creature, which was the largest one there, which was a roughly 3,000-pound white American bison, a huge buffalo of a creature. It was taller than our van, and it was this huge, heavy beast whose head could barely fit sideways into our window, but it tried. Fortunately, I was able to roll up the window, and it just slobbered and snotted all over the front of it. I have a video if you ever want to see it, but I'm thankful there was a barrier between us. I'm thankful that I was in a car and not out on my own. At one point, he literally leaned on the front of our, our van as I tried to move so that we wouldn't go without feeding him his carrot. My point being, there was graciously a barrier between us where I was not crushed by the weight of this thing that wanted something from me. God is a much bigger thing than an American bison. God created that bison. God, God spoke that bison into existence. God is the great creator of the entire universe. There is nothing that could stop him if he wanted to move in a particular direction or do a particular thing. There is nothing that we could possibly do to stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? But before Christ, there was no barrier between us. His wrath and anger at us was just like the wrath and anger at Judah. He was frustrated with our sin. He was aggravated by our rebellion, and he was not going to permit it to stand. Each and every one of us have fallen short of his commands and his glory, and each and every one of us deserve his punishment forever. But the good news is that God sent his own son to be the go-between, to be the protector, to be the savior. Think about that. A leader, a, a ruler, a king who came down and did not just pretend to like his subjects, but who gave himself for them, who lived for them, and who died in their place. There is no other earthly politician who would do such a thing. This Jesus is the greatest example of love the world has ever known. He is the only king worthy of the title. He is the one who came down and loved us to the point of dying for us. He is not just a politician. This is not what we mean by king. He is the ruler, and there is no one other than him like him on earth. He didn't just come to the poor and needy and give them stuff. He gave them himself. If you are saved, you are saved because Jesus died to save you at the cross. He, unlike any other ruler of all time, gave himself for us. He was there to redeem. He was there to restore. He was there to do what we could not on our own. He cleansed us, as it says in Isaiah chapter 6. That is the good news of the gospel. And if you are here and are not saved, the one thing that you need more than anything else is to be right with God because there is no barrier between you and His wrath. So turn to Him and repent. And if you are in Christ, please be thankful as you pursue the great King of the universe, loving Him at all times for what He has done for you. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and kindness of sending your son Jesus, the great king of the universe, the treasure of heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now to love him more and to live for him. God, I pray that you would help us to walk in wisdom as there are often many questions in regards to how we should live politically in this world. When we know that every leader that, that exists in our nation is flawed, 
Lord, we desire to be able to worship you even as we vote. So help us have wisdom. Help people to have strong convictions about what is good and what is right. Help people to be patient with one another and understanding of one another when we have disagreements about these things, knowing that this world is ultimately not our home, but our kingdom is in heaven. Please, Lord, we ask for justice and peace in this world today. Help our nation to heal where it is currently broken. Help there to be joy where there is sorrow and help there to be life where there has been death. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand.